शिला गुरुदेव की जय श्रीमन महाप्रभु की जय श्री हरि नाम संकीर्तन की जय गौर भक्त वृंद की जय गौर प्रमानंद हरिओ सो गुड मॉर्निंग टू ऑल ऑफ यू वेलकम and we are continuing with our series of lectures on vaishnava etiquette today we are continuing with our seventh meeting where we are discussing yet discussing still about the principle of sadhu sangha after some introduction to the whole idea speaking a little bit about the connection of vaishnava etiquette with also vedic culture and trying to go deep a little bit into guru seva now we are entering into we have entered starting our previous lecture in a related department which we may call sadhu sangha which is natural a natural extension of the idea of, of guru seva so today we are in the second part of this uh, addressing of the principle of sadhu sangha maybe the the last meeting on this connection and next lecture we will continue with some other topic which of course it's always connected with vaishnava etiquette in the axis in the center of it all so first of all let's do some brief recap of what we were studying uh, on the previous um, monday and we were presenting again this idea of sadhu sangha as a very crucial element for our devotional project Sri Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur interestingly when in his Raga Bharma Chandrika at the end of the second part he's uh, presenting a fivefold division of different angas of bhakti in the context of raga bhakti so he speaks about them in the terms of swabishta bhava mai swabishta bhava sambandhi swabishta bhava anukul swabishta bhava virut swabishta bhava virut something that is constituted of the very mode of one's cherished desire something which is related to one's cherished mode something which uh, is favorable for that something which is not unfavorable we, we may say neutral and something which is unfavorable so here depicts different types of practices in, in each of these categories but at one point he speaks about Vaishnava Seva or, or Sadhu Sangha it's a synonym and he says Vaishnava Seva belongs not to the five of them because one of them is unfavorable but to the other four so vaishnava seva is full of 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 one's cherished desire cherished mood uh, it's related to one's cherished mood is favorable to that and is not unfavorable to that you know, like a way of saying this is a very important point and please do not uh, jump over that very quickly but we we should spend the necessary time in that particular department actually we should stay there for eternity strictly speaking so we spoke about the meaning of sadhu sangha in our previous meeting how the very meaning of the term to get if you will attachment to honesty that's a very nice way of depicting sadhu sangha sadhu has to do to do with honest thoroughly honest uh, person and sangha means to be irresistibly attracted in that direction and to develop an attachment that will affect my own sense of being and will make me a sadhu eventually i will receive by the grace of his her mercy uh, a new identity if you will as a product of attaching myself to the principle of sat 
mm, of truthful, honest, transparent living. Mm. So Sadhu Sangha also has a lot to do with this idea of um, Vaishnava etiquette. Basically, Vaishnava etiquette is possible in... Uh, I mean, Sadhu Sangha has to do with entering into the, let's say, the mandal, the circle of Sadhachar, of proper behavior, of Vaishnava decorum. Sadhu Sangha has all to do with that. So, and, and in an indirect way, we also mentioned Sadhu Sangha has to do with avoid what that Sadhu Sangha is not. Avoiding a satsanga, and we extend this idea not with only specific people outside, but natural dynamics of the world, and especially lots of a satsanga that may be expressing itself in our own inner world, if you will, through words, through ideas, through projections, through desires, so on. So a satsanga tyag e vaishnava char. The the characteristic of a vaishnava is to remain cautious and distant from all forms of asat sangha because that won't allow sadhu sangha to fully um, take precedence in our life. So, Vaishnava etiquette is totally connected to this principle. I mean, Vaishnava etiquette will be possible in proportion to how asat sangha is absent from our lives. So, it's another way of speaking about the importance of sad sangha, sadhu sangha, in connection to this Vaishnava etiquette um, enterprise, if you will, project. We then laid some emphasis in the Upadashambrita of Srila Rupa Goswami, and especially in the first sections, first two, three, four verses, five, fifth verse, especially the fourth, we spent some time there speaking about different loving exchanges between Vaishnava, but also the previous emphasis he's making on who, on this point, hmm? Ta- taking sadhu sangha, avoiding a sad sangha from different perspectives, and, and then how to behave with the sadhus, giving gifts, receiving gifts, revealing our mind in confidence, receiving that confidence from others, receiving prasad, giving prasad, hmm? giving, receiving. The point is, there's always giving, receiving, giving, receiving. It's a two-way street, reciprocal dealings. Hmm? And the two... Things require the best of us to give to a Vaishnava and to receive from a Vaishnava. In both cases, humility is required and proper Vaishnava decorum is required. Not only in the moment of giving, but also we should learn how to properly receive something that comes from the hand of the sadhu. So all this is very, um, how to say, very represents a very uplifting prospect. And then after that, Rupa Goswami, and we also extended the idea to what the Srimad Bhagavatam is mentioning, about how to develop a criterion regarding how to relate hmm, with different types of devotees and with different types of people even, hmm, including Bhagavan, hmm, which is of course not people. <laughs> but how to connect with Bhagavan, how to connect with senior Vaishnav, how to connect with equal Vaishnav, friend, friendly nature, how to connect with junior ones, compassionate way, how to connect with those who do not want to connect with you, who are envious and so on. And we laid some emphasis on the special challenge that dealing with equals constitute, and how we should know how to interpret that, how to relate to that, how to deal with those that are, we are living close by, we are living together. There are special challenges there because you get to know so many things about the other person in intimacy, and with that intimacy, you can whether exploit the person and, and just 
focus your attention in the negative, the relative side, or take that in a certain way that it will further increase the intimacy. That's the whole idea. And not become misled by certain relative details that you may be and just judging the whole person because of that. And trying to illustrate that point, we ended our last meeting with one very nice, beautiful story with Srila Prabhupada and Srila Bhakti Pramod Puri Maharaj. The Srila Puri Maharaj himself was sharing what he went to visit Prabhupada and Prabhupada asked him uh, for a gift. As, as you know, he eventually promised Srila Prabhupada gave me the gift of appreciating the power of Bhakti and how it comes into the life of someone with who may have a very unbecoming background but starts the process of transformation from day one and so on. So today we will continue with Sadhu Sangha, second meeting regarding Vaishnav Seva and Satsangha. So let's we will share some more other tips in connection to how to deal with Vaishnavs and, and especially we will con- concentrate at the end of our meeting in connection to how to the principle of respect to the Vaishnav, to the principle of offering pranam in different forms of that, to the principle of receiving guests in the context of Tadu Sangha and, and so on. All this is an extension of what we have been speaking till now, essential, crucial aspect of uh, not only human culture, but Vaishnava etiquette especially. Hmm? So first of all, let's share some, in connection to what I've been sharing last lecture, some more practical tips connected uh, to our relationship with the Vaishnavas. Hmm? And again, hopefully all the things really sound to you as common sense, as pretty intuitive, very natural. Mm-hmm. And if something is not fitting in that sense of case, we have to work on that and see how we can make it fit. Because the background of this is Krishna's taste and Krishna's will, which is also always surcharged with love and affection. Mm-hmm. A famous example that sometimes is shared is the standard of Vaishnava etiquette that was established during the times of Srila Bhaktarakshakthir Dev Goswami Maharaj in his own math, Sri Chaitanya Sarasvat math in Navadvip. That was a very, uh, for the ones who have been there, like my Guru Maharaj or some other Vaishnavs that had the chance of visiting him in those times, they were able to witness uh, how this sense of Vaishnava etiquette between devotees living there not, was naturally coming from the love and affection that one devotee was having for other, for the other one. Above rules, if you will. I mean, again, we are speaking here about the, the rules, and, rules, rules and love in the life of a sadhaka. So the point is, if you have love, if you have some affection for someone, that will rule the whole thing, the whole situation, the whole relationship. And whatever rules are there are only there for promoting mm-hmm. such confidence, such affection. Once that has is blossoming, flourishing, naturally that will move yourself. Mm-hmm. So this was really prominent, starting with Sila Siddhar Maharaj himself sharing this soothing mm-hmm. and guardian-like spirit and that was like all-pervading, if you will, in his math. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and there you could for the ones who have been there, and again, this is not something that we should take all, only that it applies to him or to his mother at that time, but these are universal principles. So, for example, something appreciated there was the care, the care that one devotee was expressing towards others regarding the well-being of other devotees. If you are living with other devotees in the same ashram or, of course, in the community, the, the concept of 
Sangha also has to do with community. If you put an H after the G, Sangha in this case, like Sri Chaitanya Sangha, the mission of my Guru Maharaj, Sangha there means like community of, or mission. We can speak in terms of family, in more intimate, intimate terms. So it's natural that each member of the group, of the family, of the Sangha, will be on some level or another concerned about the well-being of each other. Hmm? For example, in Srila Maharaj, as I think I already mentioned, it was also considered a, a lack of etiquette if you took some distance from the Sangha without notifying where you were. Hmm? Not only to, 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 to struggle against one's own independent tendency, but also to consider <clears throat> the feeling of others. Hmm? If, 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 if I have well-wishers in my life and I suddenly disappear from the, the scenario, naturally that will create some anxiety in them, in the ones who love me. So it's a very, again, sensible, natural, commonsensical hmm, type of approach. Hmm? So each devotee should express a healthy concern regarding the other. Hmm? For example, if a devotee falls, he's sick, has some health problem, naturally the devotees will see how can I um, relieve, you know, invoke some relief for his her suffering, what can I do, what's in my hands to extend some type of service in that ne- situation of necessity, or, or whatever, you know, situation that will be naturally... Uh, I mean, again, it's human common sense to begin with. No? <laughs> I think we should boil down to that point and on that on the basis of that we express that in the context of Sadhu Sangha Vaishnava Siva. Also as I think already we mentioned something but it's important also to to have a good uh, dynamics, a good capacity, great flexibility to deal with differences. Hmm? Because our philosophy presents this idea. We are one in Tatwa, we're one in Siddhanta, we are one in Sambanda but the, the, such a uh, unique and unequivocal foundation gives rise to the expression of diversity. So we can have differences. There is no problem. As they say, variety is the spice of life. As I always say, too much spice in the food is not eatable, edible. So too much differences may create conflict. But too much non-difference may be boring as well. So we, have, we need some spice, some masala in the food. No masala at all, it may be tasteless, boring. Too much masala, it may create indigestion. So proper level of masala, proper level of, of chili differences, chili-like differences. So we all agree that we will disagree. That's a saying, at least in, in, in the Spanish language. If there is something that we will agree to begin with, is that we will certainly disagree at one point or another. So we are we are we are in agreement with that. That's the point. <laughs> Even if we are disagreeing, we are finding some agreement in that idea. And on many occasions, again, if we are speaking, as we gave the example in the previous lecture, if we feel, if we found two devotees who are really sincerely practicing, sincerely wanting to please Guru Hari, Guru Vaishnavas, and they have some difference in that context, we should see that as we mentioned some exercise to continue expanding Krishna consciousness in themselves and in others. So in many cases, the differences between the devotees may be transcendental, if you will. In other cases, they may be not, of course. But that's a possibility. Transcendental mm, differences, diversities of opinion. Mm. Some devotee may think, Krishna wants this. And some other devotee will think, Krishna wants that. But actually, Krishna wants both things and more. Mm. 
that we should also have that harmonizing capacity. And Krishna is, is the Bhaktaram Yaknyatapasam. He can take everything. He can enjoy everything. He had the capacity of having so many desires at the same time. So if some devotee may be inspired in one direction, some other in another, there should be no problem. There is place for everyone if there is sincere hunkering. So we should deal with that with maturity. I know this is not easy. I'm just mentioning that here. But it's a whole uh, process that each of us need to go through in order to give place to the other one's individuality. If that's expressed again in a proper context, this is not an excuse to be in and irrational and proposing weird things in the name of serving Guru and Vaishnavas. But again, there is a place for diversity and we should be nourished by the diversity, not crash with that. Of course, there is something that we should not tolerate, and this is, for example, things like gossip, like non-constructive criticism, prajalpa, if you will. But especially if this takes the form criticism to other Vaishnav in a non-unhealthy way, that's, we are getting closer and closer to Vaishnava Parad, and all of us want to avoid that. Hmm? This is the very first instruction that Mahaprabhu gave to Raghunadas Goswami, as you may know, when Raghunadas, the Prayoyan Tattvacharya, forward Sampradaya, asked Sri Chaitanya, please give me some personal siksha, uh, so you, you may imagine something quite esoteric came as a result, but and, and, and of course it did, but it began by Gramya Katana Suinibe, Gramya Bhartana Kaibe. Hmm? Do not uh, hear Hari, uh, Gramya Kata, which is another way of village talk, or Prajalpa, or gossip. Do not hear gossip, and do not speak gossip. Or do not speak gossip, and do not, do not hear gossip. Hmm? Because you may say, I'm not speaking, I'm just hearing, but just you are a passive uh, accomplice of the crime, if you will. Hmm? So, especially when we speak about something that we did not personally saw with our own eyes, that we are not sure if that's like that, but we start to speak about that just in case social media is especially designed for that. So we should be very careful of that. That Srila Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta say that from, from gossip comes politics. From politics comes division. And from division, everything is finished. But all... It, be, it all begins with gossip. Uh, gossip is not... It doesn't end there. That's the point. Gossip takes different, more and more degraded forms. Hmm? Politics, parties, he's the enemy, I'm the victim, victim consciousness and whatever. Hmm? Again, division, different groups, and gradually, gradually everything becomes destroyed. As Prabhupada said, this movement can be only destroyed from inside, not from the outside. So we, we ourselves are responsible for that. So we should understand, Krishna knows everything, Krishna is not uh, misinterpreting anyone, even though we may not be able to fully grasp what's going on in each one's heart, we should know Krishna knows everything about everyone, so I should continue my life. And, and some, as, as, as some time ago we mentioned that if some criticism may come to me and we may feel this is not just, I didn't do that, but... We should think this is there is some reason for this. Injustice is, does not exist, strictly speaking. And karma is totally perfect law that is working in a very without any corruption in between. So if something is coming is if you want to call it divine injustice or causeless mercy. But 
something is coming. So I have to accept that. Like the famous examples of the Bhagavatam, so many of them. Pariksit Maharaj being cursed by Sringi, the, the son of, of, the, of Samiki Rishi, Samika Rishi. And we can say he didn't deserve such a curse, but he, and he could counteract, counteract that, but he accepted that. Destiny is teaching me something. Chitra Ketu Maharaj being cursed, as we are speaking these days on Brittasura's prayers, and being cursed by Parvati, but he actually was joking with Shiva in a proper way, in a, in a healthy way, but he accepted that, no problem. So we should be open to, to, to let those elements flow in the relation with the Vaishnavas. But always, again, trying to be, as Sila Prabhupada would say, that I like, this is a quote I like very much, of course, that should be properly understood. You should be strict with yourself and merciful with others. Of course, this is not neurosis, this is not over, exaggeratedly, overtly strict with yourself. But you should be focused in correcting yourself, not so much anxious and desirous of correcting others and seeing mistakes in others. And only as much as you can be Strict with yourself, you can be merciful with others. That's the point. Pay attention to your own plane, to your own domain. Sila Siramaras will say that. If you are focused in paying close attention to your own inner domain, that's very admirable. That's very wonderful. And that will give the foundation for you to give something truly merciful to others, if you will. So we should not be very quickly anxious to attack others. You know, like Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta, he once said, someone asked him, what should we do with, with anger? Everything can be used in the service of Krishna. What to do with anger? So Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta said, we should use it against Krishna's enemies. So some devotees in the audience, they were start to wonder, what does it mean? And he could feel they are going the wrong direction with what I want to say. So he clarified his point. And he said, we should use anger against the enemies of Krishna, but first we should ask, I am not an enemy of Krishna yet, still. So the point is, if I find inside of me different tendencies that go against the pleasure of Krishna, what's favorable for bhakti, I should be violent in that direction. And violent means discipline, that's the point, strict with ourselves. Again, in a healthy way, in a sustainable way, but in a self-directed way. Because sometimes we can be strict with others and merciful with us. We, we just put the quote upside down and that's, it, won't, it won't work. So in this way we should be strict with ourselves. One of those parts, one of the forms it will take is we should be very, hopefully, controlled, trying to not let Rajaguna, Tamaguna infiltrate in our way of expressing, to speaking with the Vaishnav, do not express regarding, related to the Vaishnav in a tamasic way, rajasic way, all this will be like enemies to our young uh, blossoming bhakti, if you will. Mm-hmm. And if we will correct anyone, as we were speaking about criticism, I mean, there is a place for criticism, constructive criticism, but only we should do that. We should say that to others, or we should even allow our minds to think about that. Mm-hmm. If the person will be able to accept that criticism in an inspired way. If we just will say something that will discourage others, that makes no point. And even if the person is not ready to receive that criticism, then we should go back. No, we should not, we, even if that's true, 
what we have to say, it is say Satyambriya, Parambriya. No, the truth should be said in a in a sweet way at the same time. No, in, in a sustainable way, in a, not in a discouraging way. Hmm? Once once the idea came to my mind that if you want to share some constructive criticism, there should be at least four steps that we have to go through to to guarantee that our really our thoughts and words and intentions are healthy. Hmm? So first of all. If you feel in yourself, okay, that devotee has this defect, he, she needs to change it, I will tell that, whatever. First of all, you should feel or, or, con or, or uh, prove, if you will, that this is not your own projection. It is, it is not your own defect or anartha that you are not willing to recognize in yourself and you are just projecting that onto others, strict to with others, merciful with yourself. So that requires a good dose of uh, introspection and contemplations to begin with. First point. Now, it's not my own projection. Atmaban Manjate Jagat. Second, try to see, to ask to yourself, what's the intention behind my criticism? What's the intention? What's the feeling? I want to help the person. There's compassion there. There's well-wishing. Or there is some frustrated anger or envy or jealousy. All those things can be there. So first of all, I should question my own intentions behind that criticism. Then, also something else I should see is, even though I may be, if, if I prove, yes, it, it is his, her own thing to change, my intention is good, at the same time I should balance that criticism by seeing something positive in that person. Because if I'm only seeing one defect after the other, most probably it's not very objective. <laughs> analysis of the situation. So I should be able to put in the scale virtues and attributes that will inspire my compassionate approach to that person. So that will be a third filter. And finally, if I have gone through all them successfully, there is one last more thing to do, which is if I dare to say to other person with compassion and seeing good things and, and confirming it's not my own projection, you have to change these in a proper way. The last thing is I will commit myself to accompany that person so that person can change whatever he or she has to change. It's not just that you have to change this, hopefully you can do it, good luck, goodbye. No. no. If I'm daring to open my mouth and pronounce, see something in you that you have to change, to say that to you, I'm committing myself to help you to change that. That makes the, the, the full circle regarding constructive criticism. So I think it's a good system, if you will, a good uh, hierarchy or yeah, system that before saying something or even thinking about something for too long, what to speak of speaking that to others from the back of someone, first you have to be really have this type of integrity so we can really engage in constructive criticism, which is a necessary thing. I mean, it's not that just avoid unhealthy criticism. It's very important that we have people that may be able to pronounce constructive criticism. So we should become, it's our duty to become qualified in order to do so. And again, if we do, are not able to correct someone successfully because of our lack of maturity or because of the other one's person, lack of capacity, whatever, do not condemn the other person. Oh, he was not able to accept my observation. It's his fault. No, you may feel... I may not have also enough sensitivity or maturity to inspire that person. Of course, not also uh, discouraging yourself, but saying, well, okay, may, I may find someone else who may 
pronounce help that person to change better than me. But I won't blame anyone. Without neurosis again. And whatever we are asking someone else to change or to do, sometimes we may ask someone to do some service. Once my guru said that, he said that the rule for giving service to others is that you should be ready and prepared to do that service that you are asking from others, that you are requesting others to do. If the person for any reason says, I cannot do it, you should be ready to do it yourself. If you are not doing willing to do so, you are not, uh, how to say, a, a, an authority, if you will, to, to, to ask for others for service, because you yourself are not willing to do so. So that's a nice point that we should, because we can become accustomed just to give service, if you will, to others, to engage others in things, and that can become some sort of of mechanism in order for you to avoid doing anything and just telling everyone what to do, especially if one has some position of whatever, responsibility and leadership, those are delicate posts, if you will. So we should be very humble and careful about that. And what else? Well, relationship between devotees, ladies, gentlemen, men and women, also there should be a very, this interaction should be really protected by respect, by appreciation, by harmony. Each part should preserve their purity. One should be serious, but never uh, harsh, if you will, because you may be, I don't know, a monk, and, and you will have certain particular way of relating with the opposite sex, but that doesn't mean that you will be harsh, or you will be discouraging, or you will dismiss the other person only because it's the opposite sex or something like this. No, those examples are there, going to extremes in fanatical way, and those become another form of Vaishnava Parat. So we should be very kind, very friendly, but also friendly that is in the context of respect, because that can also go to some excess that in the name of being intimate, we may not really be very deep in our relationship. So it's a very important balance to, to have that. And again, all these tips or rules, if you want, of Vaishnav etiquette should be uh, carried on in such a way that that will be sweetening, if you will, our relationship with the sadhus. All this is in the context of sadhu sangha. So how we can sweeten our relationship with the sadhus in such a way that this allows us to advance Again, without neurosis, but in the proper spirit that Mahaprabhu himself mentioned. In humble way, tolerant way, respectful way, not expecting respect from others, with compassion. We should Our relationship should advance in a natural, smooth way, if you will, in that direction. Increasing our capacity to properly venerate each Vaishnav according to his, her uh, situation, position and so on and serve them in the best possible way. So since we are speaking about that, about how to venerate the, in the proper way, respect the Vaishnav, let's speak a little bit about this principle of Pranam. Pranam. Nama means not me, you, and Pra means refers to in a, in a very special way. To Forget myself in a special way, if you will. To deny myself, quote-unquote, my false self, my hunger, my false ego. To deny that in, in order to recognize the reality of the existence and identity of the Vaishnava. And that will help me to nourish my own sense of identity. Das, das, and udas. 
So let's share some words about pranam and, and the art of offering obeisances, which may seem like a very simple physical, mechanical act, but there is a whole science to it, a whole art, I will say, to it. I, I sometimes quote this idea that once I was doing this sirsasana, when you have your head to the ground and you're standing on, up with legs up and head down, and I was seeing everything upside down, if you will. So, and I was wondering, well, maybe this is... When you live like this, venerating everything with your head on the ground, everything will be seen upside down. And now, what I see I'm seeing properly with my head up is actually the upside down of reality. Srila Siddhar Maharaj will say, when you enter Golok Vrindavan, you will walk with your head on the, on the floor, on the earth, at every single step, because everything is worthy of your veneration. It's a, it's a way of saying, of course, it's not that necessarily they are walking literally with the head on the ground. But the point is, we should be prepared to worship, venerate affectionately every speck of dust in the higher realm. So everything will be seen from the other side. Everything is for my, for putting on my head, not stepping on others' head to to obtain, to be someone in the world, as my Guru Maharaj will say, but to get in my head stepped on by the sadhus, to obtain some position in the higher domains. Brahma says that, Gyan Prayasa Namanta Eva. After the Brahma Vimohan Lila, where the four heads of Brahma were spinning, eventually the four of them, well, he was not able to put the four of them at the same time, but were on the floor, going down, and he was saying, I reject totally this, intention of wanting to capture everything to the in, in the feast of the intellect and I will I feel I, I'm receiving much more knowledge and insight by putting my head to the ground namaste namaskar uh, by this movement you know, I will obtain much more knowledge it's more the knowledge that comes from putting my head to the ground properly again this is not a force act mechanical thing but I will receive much more insight by going down, that by all going up, that by putting my head up and trying to see everything below me, hmm? wanting to know everything. And so Krishna in the Gita refers to the importance of offering Namaskar. He says, Satatam kirtayantamam yatantashtadrida brata namasyantashtamam bhaktya nityayukta vashti. Namasyanta. Or mam manabhavamad bhaktor mam yahi mam namaskuru. Namaskuru, namasyantas. Namaskar, Namaskar, Namaste. He's referring to the principle of my devotees are constantly putting their head to the ground, basically. <laughs> and trying in this way to express something, express gratitude, express their intention of reciprocate. Basically, a good part of what we have to do, a good part of most of what is expected from us, is not so, it's not so much... Uh, what else we can receive? Sometimes we have that type of orientation. It's a type of neurosis. What else can I receive? But actually, the real expectation should be, because it's part of our world, it's part of our modern culture. I want more. I need more. I need to include more, incorporate more. But actually, what is expected from us is, what should we do with those things that already arrived to our lives? Not so much, what else should come in? But already something came, and it's not just something, it's everything. So how do we, how a certain particular approach from the Absolute came to our lives, how do we return the embrace? A particular embrace from Krishna came to our lives, in the form of particular current of bhakti, 
embracing us. So now bhakti means for us return the embrace. Embrace has come, now we are trying to reciprocate that. And that will warranty what will keep coming to our lives after that. It's not so much nothing is coming, nothing is happening, something already came, something already happened, now I am to return the embrace. So instead of being expecting more and more and more, we should know what to do with that thing that already came to our life. So this idea of pranam and offering obeisance has to do with that in great part. Being able to acknowledge <clears throat> the, the dimension of the gift that already is there in my life. Once my Guru said say that, if you want something else to happen, you may say, I want Baba, I want to experience this and this in my heart, this feeling, this emotion, this ecstasy. First of all, you have to know Baba is not something for you to experience and the like in. It's something to offer in service. You will put your Baba in service to the object of your affection. But he once said, if you want some inner movement, like Baba, if you will, first you have to re- engage in an external movement. And he said, Namaskar, Namaskar, put your head to the ground, move your body in a certain way, and that will create some body, some, mo- some movement, sorry, in your inner body. There is one saint, in Christian saint, in, well, in many traditions, this is a, a fact, not only in Gaudiya Vedanta, in Christianity, and many other, this idea of offering pranam, offering obeisances, is a very practical way of having interesting epiphany moments. There's one called San Juan Climaco, I don't know how to say that in English, but he wrote one book even called, I think, The Saintly Scale, or something like this. When he was one, when he went to live to the, the church, the, the monastery, he was instructed that his service was, you stand up in the door, and you offer obeisances to every person that is passing through. <laughs> That's your service, offering pranam to every single person. And he wrote after that like a diary of like a, way of sharing his insights that came from that, being engaged in that service for years. So that's a very interesting uh, testimony. I would like to read that book someday. I was not able yet to do so, but what I heard it was very interesting. Many, many insects coming only, quote-unquote, from putting your head to the ground. Of course, with the proper attitude and, and conception. And again, in the Gaudiya Vedanta, this is also mentioned, if you read the Sat Goswami Astakam, there it is mentioned how the Goswamis on a daily basis, they were performing a fixed number of pranam, of obeisances, along with a fixed number of chanting and a fixed number of this and that. Also, they were offering, and not one or two, sometimes thousands of obeisances per day. Hmm? I remember once when I went to India the first time, uh, and I was doing Govardhan Parikram, so it takes like six hours if you are walking at, at a good pace, and you find there are some people doing <clears throat> what is called Dandavat Parikram. Just to do the Govardhan Parikram is intense. Again, six hours to circumambulate the whole hill. But some people were doing Dandavat Parikram, which means falling to the floor like a rod, and then standing up and again, and standing up and again. And there are different ways of doing that. This sadhu was doing that in a particular way, and he was falling like a rod and putting one stone next to him. Again, going to the same position, again falling in Dandavat, putting another stone. Like this, with 100 stones, 108, sorry, stones, little rocks. And then he get, he make one step <laughs> and did the same again. And in this way, he was circumambulating Govardhan, which of course will take years for him. Now, he was living just right, right there at the base of Govardhan. So 
Of course, you may see that and you may feel horrified. I won't do that. But beyond that, you should think why he is doing that. What is taking him to do that? What What's internally raging in his her heart for in order to accept such a particular way of... I mean, something must be happening. Nor, nobody's paying to him. He's not famous. He's not having some support from the government. He's just doing that by personal, voluntary choice. So the point is, something is coming from that act. Hmm? So it's very important, this idea of feeling addicted to wanted to offer respect, hmm? but not, not to accept it. This is the rule of Mahaprabhu. Amani hmm? manadena. Like the picture in the flyer of, of, of this series when Srila Prabhupada is offering a garland to Srila Siddhar Maharaj, a very nice picture. And Srila Siddhar Maharaj is actually receiving that, but also offering his pranam to Prabhupada. So it's like a beautiful competition of wanting to give respect, but not wanting to accept that. Hmm? Like in the Brihad Bhagavad Tamrita, in the first part, Narad Muni is traveling and finds some devotee and say, oh, you are the topmost object of Krishna's mercy. And he'll say, no, 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 no. I'm not that one. It's that devotee. That's not that devotee. He's the great one. So Narada goes and repeats those glories. You are the great most. No, no, I'm not the great. It's that devotee. So in this way, they are not accepting respect for themselves, but it's always seeing someone worthy of that, glorifying, worthy of glorification. I once remember also seeing one video of Nayanananda Das Babaji. He was a disciple of Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta. He was invited to a meeting with many different sadhus from India, disciples of Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta and others. But he was one of the senior most, and, and he arrived later to the meeting. So everyone was speaking, and suddenly he arrived, and he just sat in a very humble way and sat to the floor in one corner without being noticed by most. So they continued, and at one point someone realized, oh, Nayanananda Das Babaji came. So eventually, like half of the audience woke up and tried to take him to a higher seat, but he was not willing to, to allow that. And he was like struggling from the floor and remaining there. And the other devotees were trying to push him to the high floor. So they were struggling in, in, because one wanted to give respect. The other didn't want to accept that. So that was a very charming scene for me that really depicted you know, this, this, the ideal standard of how we should deal with this principle. So on a daily basis, we should offer obeisances. To begin with, we are speaking here about the Vaishnav, to the Vaishnavs. Sometimes we have saying to the Guru, we should offer obeisances for sure. Or sometimes they say to a sannyasi, and sometimes they say, if you do not offer obeisances to him, you have to fast all day. <laughs> and sometimes the motivation to offer pranam may be, I want to eat as soon as possible. So that's not the idea for sure. And this is not limited to one or other Vaishnava. We should offer obeisances to every Vaishnava to increase our humility. Again, for example, Raghunath Das Goswami was say to offer 2,000 obeisances per day to the devotees and 1,000 to Bhagavan. So again, that takes time, but that takes your energy and life in, in the proper sense, in the proper direction. So we should do that on a daily basis. Of course, sometimes in, in the temples, the devotees in the morning, they offer obeisances to themselves in a general way, reciting the famous pranam mantra, Bancha kalpa tarubhya stragripasana dupya evacha patitanam pavanibhya vaishnavibhya namonamaha. To the Vaishnavas, says, kalpa briksha, desire trees, an ocean of mercy, deliverers of the falling. And in this way, they also try to meditate about all the Vaishnavas, not only the ones present at that particular moment, but everyone. And trying in this way, if I fail to venerate any Vaishnava, I'm trying this moment to counter that offense, if you will. But we should feel some happiness in order to do so. For example, 
going back to Sri Chaitanya Sarasvati Mahat, they say that the devotees at least once a day, every single day they went up to Srila Siddhar Maharaj's quarters, which was up to offer pranam to him. Simply that, merely offering that. No, that's a lot, if you really understand what's the meaning of that. So being again grateful. If we go to the Guru, to the Vaishnava, we are wanting to express our gratitude, our indebtedness, and the happiness of that depth, and what we can do in service to that, Kinkara. Not so much, give me more, give me more, give me more. And when I have taken all that I could, I, I, I start to exploit that person. You know, the famous story of the, of the sage that was meditating and suddenly, we yesterday shared that. A mouse came to him and he said, what's going on? You, are, you seem afraid. Oh, a cat wants to eat me. Please make me a cat. You are a mystic. You, you can help me. Okay, Tatashtu, let it be. No? He becomes a cat. But eventually the cat comes again, disturbed. A, a dog wants to eat me, to bite me. Make me a dog. Okay, make you, make you a dog. And eventually again, coming. Only coming to the side when there is some problem and I need, help me, help me. <laughs> so a lion wants to eat me. Make me a lion. Okay, may you become a lion. But at that point the lion starts to look at the sage and, and his eyes start to, to, to be bright and some saliva falls and he's like hungry. So the sadhu say, what, what's now? You want to eat me? No? Are you are a lion? You are hungry with me? In relation to me? The lion says, yes. Punar musikobhav, says the sadhu. Which means, again, become a mouse. Like implying, you only came to me to take, to take, to take. And when you took all that you want, now you are at one point. Because of being ungrateful, you start to think in terms of criticizing and exploiting. So... There, that's possible. That's possible. If we get accustomed to that mood and understand the status only in terms of serving ourselves, we will never be satisfied. There's always more that we can take, but that's not satisfying at all. Hmm. So, again, let's go back to the pranam in, in a more technical way. We spoke a little bit about the spirit of it all. But also, as I think I mentioned, when we offer our pranam to the deities, for example, we should give our left side to them. Hmm. To the Guru, we should give unto the Vaishnav our front side to them. And to the Devas, if, if it happens to, we have a Murti of the Deva, or, or some of them come to visit at home, you should revere them with your right side to them. It's a way of making clear who is who, if you will. Mm-hmm. And again, there are different degrees of, of course, the inner attitude is everything, but also sometimes the inner attitude will show itself, play itself out in, in how the form, external form it takes. So sometimes it is said that the maximum, the maximum, the highest uh, degree of respect is, called, is seen if this is what we call dandavat, which means again to fall like a rod. Sometimes it is called sastanga pranam, which eight, eight limbed pranam. This is described in, in the Hari Bhakti Vilas, which are the eight limbs. He say, Sanatana Goswami say that we one should bow down with both arms, with both feet, with the chest. With both knees, sorry, with the chest, with the head, with the eyes, with the heart, and with words. Hmm? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Of course, both arms are, con- are counted as one. So both arms, both feet, both knees, the chest, the head, the eyes, the heart, and the words. Again, we should always pronouncing some pranam mantra while doing that. That's part to make it sastanga complete, to make the eight parts complete. We should be also using that. Hmm? This dandavat it also falls in, in the category of bandhanam, what Prahlad Maharaj describes as different 
forms of bhakti, shramana, kirtana, vishwasmana, and so on. Another way of offering pranam is panchanga pranam, we could say, which five five limbed obeisances, which involve five parts, which are the knees, the arms, the head, the intellect, and the words. Again, words are there, the inner part is there as well. I mean, it, it cannot be devoid of the, its inner life. And we could say that the simplest form of, of, of offering pranam is the, what's called sometimes the pranam mudra or the anjali mudra, which basically means put your two hands together in your heart and slightly bow, bow your head and offering pranam to the person. So when basically that has to do with different types of offering pranam with body, mind, words, and so on. For, and also we should be careful of certain details. For example, I've seen sometimes devotees chanting Japa and suddenly a devotee comes or they enter the temple and they fall to the ground with the Japa Mala in their hands and they touch the ground. And the idea is that the Japa Mala, the Malika, should not touch the ground at any situation. So if you are to go to the ground, you take your hand out and you put it on, on some place and you put... Because, again, the pranam is with your two hands on the ground. So if you have one hand in your Malika... That will take, that will, or you are using only one hand or you are putting your malika to the ground. Sometimes I've seen the Buddhists offering Dandavat Pranam and if they have their malika on their neck, they will put their, the malika on their head when they are falling to the ground. So it does, it's not touching the ground at the same time. If they have no place to put it or something. So this is a very nice practice. In the Bhagavatam we find some quotes about this. For example, in his instruction to his wife Diti regarding the process of bhakti, Kasyapa was saying to her, one should with great delight and satisfaction offer obeisances falling straight like a rod. Hmm? This is the eighth canto of the Bhagavad. Sukadev Goswami also, when he's speaking in the Bhagavad how a lady should perform one ceremony called Pumsavana, says that one should offer obeisances unto the Lord with the mind humbled through devotion. And while offering Dandavat by falling on the ground like a rod, one should chant the above mantra ten times. And he pronounced the mantra in six cantos. So again, Dandavat. Danda interestingly also means chastisement. So it's a chastisement for the ego, if you will. The ego doesn't want to go to the floor, doesn't want to put the head to the feet of anyone. So in this way, like the sannyasi carries a tree Danda. Tree Danda means chastisement. And tree Danda means Threefold chastisement, like mind, body, words, in connection to to the service of Krishna. I will chastise my organs, in, 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 if you will, by engaging them in Krishna's service. And, and this is interesting because this offering of Dandavat is quite an ancient practice. You can see that as part of the, of the worship, the temple worship is offering pranam for millennia, you can see that in ancient stone carvings throughout, for example, in, in the famous Sri Rangan temple in South India, that's carved in many places of the temple, the offering on pranam, even etched into the floor in various places are images of a man and a woman offering dandavats side by side. By side. So we have also reference for ladies falling to the ground as, as, as rods. There, there are some different standards in that regard. In some areas in India, some uh, modern if you will, modern local custom may dictate that women also only offer five part of essences, panchanga pranam, or some modified form of dandavat falling on one side of the body rather than the full dandavat that is described in the Vedic scriptures. 
uh, and some local customs have been adopted in certain missions. But for example, in, in ISCON, the mission that Prabhupada, Society, International Society for Christian Consciousness, founded the Srila Prabhupada, there are some evidence that Prabhupada approved a woman offering Dandavat. But in later years, this other idea came there. So there are details, again, the essential principle, we already know what's that. So this is very much connected with this idea of respecting others, and not only respecting, of course, a formality, but affectionate thing and learning from others and nourishing of our bhajan, our bhajan from the others' contribution in diversity, and how to receive others. So let me give me some extra minutes today. I would like to share some ideas before finishing regarding, in connection to the idea of pranam and offering respect, connection to the idea of how to receive guests, which of course applies to receive Vaishnava guests, but even goes beyond that. In India especially, you find this great culture of uh, hosting guests. There is one quote, they say that, Atiti Devo Bhavam, which means like, and a guest, especially an unexpected guest, should be treated as God himself. It's a very interesting concept. Because in one sense we could say, God himself is an unexpected guest. In the sense of he will come to our lives in different ways and situations totally unexpectedly. And we should be willing and ready always to increase our hosting capacity, if you will. So how to relate especially what to speak when a Vaishnava, a sadhu, comes to our life. And unexpectedly, in the scripture, we find many of these renunciants that are wandering in the world and suddenly enter one house and nobody expected them, but it's such a blessing. <clears throat> I remember I, I like very much a section in the Bhagavatam where at one point the Kumaras arrive unexpectedly to Prithu Maharaj's kingdom. And so Prithu Maharaj is receiving the Kumaras and he's about to ask to the Kumara, how are you? <laughs> but interestingly, uh, he immediately realized, how can I ask an Atmaram sage, how is he? He's Atmaram, he's self-satisfied. Actually, that person even knows how I am better than me, better than how I know how I am. So instead of asking the, the sadhu, how are you? I will ask the sadhu, how I am? How do you see me? Please give me your vision, give me your blessing. <laughs> so there's again this is a whole art of how to receive guests in a proper way we could speak in different levels of categories of that the first one will be receive them with sweet words that's the very first and most important offering your attitude in receiving them now you will think this guest has gone through some difficulties to arrive to my place some journey sometimes he may be tired because of this first thing some happy face, smiling, not a show, of course, in a natural way, not some sweet words, and after that, some seat for the person to sit and take rest, then I can offer something to drink, a glass of water, some juice, whatever, at least a glass of water, after that, again, some words inquiring, how are you, and this how are you, once we mentioned that one devotee, like, I like what he said, he said, between the both is we our the how I how are you should take a particular form. And it is how is your bhajan? How is your spiritual life? There should be no difference between how are you, how is your bhajan if you are a bhajanab. It's not that how are you, everything nice, and how is your bhajan? Terrible, bad. I mean, what's the difference between how are you and how is your bhajan? So once he say that, between the bodhis, they ask how are you, or between Brahmins he said that time, how is your spiritual life? 
Between Kshatriyas, they will ask, how is the kingdom going? Between Vaishyas, they will ask, how are the business going on? And between Sudras, they will ask, how are you? <laughs> of course, this may be a normal way of expressing in society, but it's nice to understand what the meaning of how are you actually. So after inquiring about the well-being of that person, we may offer if the person wants something to eat. And again, if nothing of this we have, at least if we don't have a seat, don't have water, don't have food, don't have... At least we should offer some sweet words. That we must have in connection to the Vaishnavas. Because if not, we may indulge in one of the six types of Vaishnava Parat. I don't want to go into detail with that. It's a long topic. But there are six types of Vaishnava Parat. In brief, you can, have, you can kill a Vaishnava. You may imagine that's quite gross. You can physically attack a Vaishnava without killing him. You can abuse a Vaishnava with your words. You can think about ill about the Vaishnava in your mind. Uh, and you can also, something that is mentioned that in this particular context I wanted to highlight is that you, won't, you, won't, you are not happy when seeing a Vaishnav. That's considered one of the six four Vaishnav orat. A Vaishnav comes and you are not happy because of that. So again, at least some smiling face and sweet words. Again, not in a forced way, but because you really feel blessed. A Vaishnav came to my life. Bhagavan came to my life. And so many details, of course. The other day, Sumati was sharing with me some memories from Jamuna Dasi, the famous Srila Prabhupada disciple, about how she behaved exemplarily with guests. Now she said that she, she knew that guests were coming, for example, for Prashad, whether there be two or two hundred, she will plan in detail all the preparations in consideration of the flavors, the textures, the colors, even the, the overall design of the of the plates, the offering plates, and make a beautiful place setting for each guest to show, basically her appreciation for their association to her. So again, this should really be a natural expression of our love and affection for the person. And again, if some special person comes, sometimes we may have a very important visit. There may be some additional elements that may be recommended. Sometimes there may be some receiving with kirtan, a holy name. Sri Harinam Nagar Sankirtan to celebrate the welcoming of the person. And of course, this goes beyond an important person. Uh, to accompany the person, to have the darshan of the deities, if there are deities in your altar at home in the temple, to accompany the guests there. And again, to ask if that person has some necessity, water to take a bath, if you have clean clothes, if you need some personal thing to, for cleaning your body, for having rest as much as you can. This type of affectionate, intimate concern should be there. Hmm? And of course, again, if some extraordinary person comes, some other items are there, like washing his her feet, offering a special chair, giving some special attention. But the, the general idea is that the guests will feel happy and comfortable. Hmm? It's not, I mean, the opulence of our hosting is not what determines its quality. Hmm? That's the point. But the sincerity, hmm? the love, the affection, and the desire to please naturally the Vaishnav, that's a, the important thing. We have to remember how Krishna himself was washing the feet of Sudam, the Brahman in Sudam, when he went to visit him. Or he rejected the opulent uh, offering of food of Duryodhan, which was externally perfect. But he went to Vidura's house and he ended up eating the banana peels coming from Vidura's wife. And that was higher for him. That was higher Vaishnava etiquette. <laughs> or again, with Sudama Brahmana, he had some grains of rice that he wanted to give to Krishna and Krishna took them and ate them and he was a feast for them even though externally it was not a big thing 
Or similarly, Raghunath Das Goswami eating this poor rice and Mahaprabhu taking from his mouth and saying, you are having such a feast, you are not inviting me. So again, the general principle is Patram Pushpam Palantriyam Yome Bhakti Prayajati. If there is Bhakti, if there is sincere devotion, no matter if externally we may have only leaf, fruit, water, anything, at least sweet words, hmm? devotional words. Hmm? So we should be very careful of, of, of honoring properly each Vaishnava. So let me finish my today's presentation and before we go if you got if you have any questions but let me share one more story as we close the other day also it's a very nice story this is a very famous one maybe you already know it but it's worthy of sharing so this is a very famous uh, pastime that may hopefully inspires us in this connection coming from the Mahabharata in connection with the famous Raja Suyayaknya executed by the Pandavas Yudhisthir Maharaj especially so it is. It was said that at the end of this particular Raja Suya Yaknya that Yudhisthira Maharaj was executing ultimately for pleasing Krishna. But the point is that once this sacrifice was concluded, in order to show that it was perfectly executed, there will be some bell in the center of the arena, if you will, that will start ringing on its own to confirm sacrifices complete, some purnam. So all the mantras were there, they, find, they recited the final mantras, everything was finished, so everything was happy and pleased. So they were all looking at the bell, expecting, okay, the jagni is complete, waiting for it to start ringing, but it never rang. rang. So they thought, they thought something must be wrong, we, found, we must have failed in some procedure. So at that point, when the boat approached Krishna, he was there, and totally like overwhelmed, what to do? So the sacrifice, sacrifice was not perfect. What did we what did we do wrong? Which was where was the mistake? We pleased all the devas, the rishis, we glorified Bhagavan, you are here. Everything was done according to the rules, the regulations, and so on. So Krishna of course gave the arts the first part of the answer. He said, Yes. Everything all that was due was properly done, but you forgot one thing. Very important one. You failed to please one Vaishnava who doesn't want anything for himself, who is just serving his guru without any position, Nirupadi Vaishnava, free from all mundane designation, you didn't please him. So that's the whole thing. So Yudhisthira Maharaj says, what to do next then? So Krishna said, okay, uh, I, I knew, I knew a Vaishnava like this. I mean, he was not pointing, he was not speaking about a particular Vaishnava, but any Vaishnava that may be of that standard, that's part, such a Vaishnava, has to be placed. So Krishna said, I know one of them. He lives outside the city in a little cottage. So he's, Krishna said, Arjuna, you go, please him, bring him to him, and Draupadi must cook the best food for him, and honor him in this way, like a guest. So Arjuna immediately left with his chariot and stopped in front of the little cottage. So he bowed down to the Vaishnava in Dandavat and said, please, dear Sadhu, the district Maharaj needs you to come to the Raya Surya Yaknya. So the sadhu in his full humility say, no, 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 you must have the wrong address. No? <laughs> Why will someone like Yudhisthira Maharaj need someone like me? So Arjuna replied, well, actually the king has sent me precisely to this very address. Now I have the GPS here, it was here. <laughs> and, and, and Krishna gave the order to do so as well. So, but the Vaishnava kept insisting in his humility. Arjuna, for sure you are making some mistake. He was very apologetic, saying, I'm just an insignificant soul, nothing to give, nothing to do who I am. You, did, you don't need me there. 
but Arjuna implied, implored to him, please, I request you with all my heart sincerity, please come with me and do me this favor. So Arjuna kept on insisting in such a way that finally the Vaishnav came along in the chariot with him. So you can imagine the humble Vaishnav, he felt very awkward entering about the palace in Indraprastha. All the great sages were gathered, magnificent, magnificent sacrifice, all performing an arctic to the sadhu. They sat, they sat him down in a very comfortable seat. They put a garland and washed his feet and they explained what they had brought him there. They wanted to feed him. Draupadi had cooked for him. So the Vaishnava, he was already feeling very uncomfortable in his humility about all this attention to him. And now he had to sit there and eat you know, this big feast and everyone was looking to him. <laughs> so Draupadi had cooked a huge feast and all different preparations were served to the Vaishnava. So they all encouraged him, please accept the food, enjoy it. So he took the preparations, he put some of his leaf plate, he mixed them together all the preparation and start eating. So he thought, oh, this is this delicious. He honored that. So all these gifts were given to him. You know, he washed his hands. Arjuna took the sadhu back to his cottage. So everything, everyone was thinking, okay, now the bell will ring. So they were looking at their bell, but their bell was not ringing. So they thought, what happened now? We served the Nirupati Vaishnava, but the bell is not ringing. What's wrong now? So again, they approached Krishna and again he said, Okay, you did what I asked, but the bell is not ringing. So the sacrifice, of course, is not complete. So Krishna said, then somebody must have offended that Vaishnava. First, we, did, we offended the Vaishnava, but not inviting him. Now, some other offense must be there. So they began to inquire. Everyone, do you have, did you offend him? Did you offend him? So everyone said, no, I didn't offend the Vaishnava. And finally, they asked Draupadi, the cook, whether she had offended the Vaishnava or not. So Draupadi lowered her head. Hmm. And she told them, she confessed her crime, if you will. So she told them, well, what to do? I had cooked so many preparations with so many flavors and I put so much detail in that and I, I wanted the Vaishnava to enjoy them all in a particular way. But the Vaishnava took all the preparation and mixed them all together before it starting. So I thought, how can he taste any of the preparations I cook for him? He's probably a man without culture. So Krishna heard that part and said, there you have it. That's the offense. <laughs> you judge the Vaishnava from some relative external cultural thing. And so Krishna said, now the only way to counteract this is you have to bring the Nirupati Vaishnava again next day, tomorrow. And so Arjuna went again with the whole chariot and kindly asked the Vaishnava, come to see Yudhisthira Maharaj again. You can imagine how difficult it was to, for Arjuna to get the Vaishnava again, going back to the whole assembly. So he begged, and begged and begged till finally the devotee couldn't refuse, basically. So he was received again and honored in a very extravagant manner. And Draupadi cooked an even larger feast than the previous one. So she offered all the preparations to the Vaishnava. And the Vaishnava took all of them, mixed them all again together, <laughs> make a hodgepodge. And he started to eat and he enjoyed the prasad very nicely, cooked by Draupadi. And this time Draupadi was very careful not to offend him, not to judge him on something external. And when he put the last morsel of food into his mouth and he had a very big smile, suddenly the bell started to ring very loudly. So everyone understood at that point, okay, Raja Suryayaknya has now been successfully completed, but most importantly, everyone understood how crucial it is not to offend a single one single Vaishnava, how crucial it is to be a proper host 
and proper venerate and honor them because if you offend the Vaishnav somehow or other, the bell of your devotion in your heart will not start ringing. That's the whole idea of this Raya Suya Yakni pastime. If you judge a Vaishnav in a wrong way, the bell of Bhakti won't ring. So we have, not in an erotic way, but in a very hope, open and humble and deep way, be very careful of always trying to properly venerate every Bhakta because that means Bhakti is there. That's why Vaishnav is extraordinary and we pay special attention to the Vaishnav. Everyone has the potential to be a Vaishnav. In the case of Vaishnavs, they have taken advantage of Bhakti's, their potential for Bhakti, so we especially honor that. So some words I wanted to share with you today, closing with this very famous and instructive pastime from the Mahabharata. So we have some minutes. If In case anyone may have any question you may like to, to share, I will allow for unmuting for whoever may like to present any question. <clears throat> Omkar, yes, tell me. Can you hear me? Yes. Are you yeah, uh, I... Thank you for this wonderful classes. Uh, I've enjoyed especially these last two where you speak about the nature of our satsanga. Um, and uh, yeah, my question today was when you mentioned uh, uh, here it's on my note um, how sadhusanga fully takes precedent um, when we caution ourselves against Asatanga. I just wanted to ask you what you meant exactly by Sadhusanga fully taking precedent. Can you repeat the last part? I was not able to, to hear the last part. Please, sorry. Yeah, um, just what did you mean about Sadhusanga fully taking precedent? What would that look like? <laughs> Go back. Well, of course, we can speak about that, but another thing is to really become drenched in that, and we will really understand that when we do that. No, I mean, we, we can, in theory, understand, to begin, we have to begin there, in theory, understand how Sadhu Sangha really affects my sense of identity, and if I want to become, want to become a Sadhu, I need to be, uh, imbibe, imbibe myself in, in Bhakti Samskars, devotional impressions coming from Bhaktas. So the point is, if I take full advantage of that full embrace Sadhu Sangha, it will mean I become myself fully a devotee. And as much as a Satsangha is still playing itself out in my life, of course that somehow or other is nourishing or malnourishing a sense, <clears throat> a sense of non-devotional identity, if you will. No? So that's the point. No? So gra gradually, this is a gradual process again, because we may not be fully aware of the many layers of a satsanga that still are being oper operative in our life. Again, and with this I'm not necessarily mentioning outside forces. No? This can also refer to many impressions from many lifetimes that, that may play itself out as a satsanga in our inner self. So gradually, by the force of sadhusanga, by increasing our baptism scars, we will be, well, eventually we will become addicted to that in, in a healthy way. I mean, we only will want sadhusanga because try to understand the, the ultimate standing situation of the devotee in the spiritual world means there's only sadhusanga there. When you are born even in the Prakat Lila, you will be born from the womb of the gopi and everyone around it will be... <laughs> Nitya Parishats of Bhagavan, there will be only a Sadhu Sangha available. So you, you can imagine, there's a whole world only constituted of Sadhu Sangha. So here we are trying to 
prepare ourselves for entering into such a such a fire. It's like a fire, of course, getting close to the sadhu may burn if you get too close and you have not the capacity of remaining there. But if you get too far, you may remain in, in a raw state, not, not being edible. So we should know how much we can enter into that fire and, and, and being willing to do so. Now, sometimes the sadhu is, is like compared to the, like, like the shastra. Shastra means that which cuts. So a sadhu is like a cutting edge that will cut the illusion in our life. Of course, not in a violent way, not in a cruel way. But as we spoke before, the mercy of the sadhu may come in the form of chastisement in a loving context. If someone loves me and chastises me, that's a special confidence and mercy. So we should understand that sadhu sangha has to do with change. So to be willing to remain in that environment and to develop, uh, again, an affinity to the point of healthy addiction, (laughs) that I really feel myself nourished in that environment and I want to live there forever. At least when those ideas start to become part of your your ideal in life we we may we may say we, we are getting a glimpse of what does it mean to to really embrace sadhu sangha fully and not conceive any other thing you know, when we start to conceive of ourselves fully in the context of sadhu sangha and we feel i'm okay with that i don't need to see myself outside of of the protective circle of sadhu sangha i don't i don't need any more a, a parallel identity outside of sadhu sangha to, to remain alive. And in some stage, we may need still that sections of our relative sense of self. So again, this is a gradual thing. We, shouldn't, we should advance with that in a healthy way and happy way. So some ideas in that connection. I hope that helps. Any other thing? Here, Sakurati yeah. is sharing one uh, commentary or question. Let's see. In the chat says she says, I heard that we make dandavats with the left side, so she refers to the ladies, of the body towards the altar because that's where the heart is. Have you heard this idea and do you have any comment? Well, I never heard about of that idea. <laughs> I'm not saying it's wrong. There may be some line there. We may have to do some research. Maybe I don't know if Brigupad is connected and he knows if Kari Bhakti let's say something about that, although I don't think so. But I don't have a problem with that, of course. No? Of course, again, we say the heart and the heart. What's the heart, eventually? And it's not a muscle. No? Physically located, there is one muscle called heart. But when we speak of heart, we are speaking about the Atma, our very self. Mm-hmm. So, uh, because I would say, okay, if you are not doing the left side, it means you are not giving your heart. No, of course not. So, because you can become, you can present a feminist argument for that matter. No? Ladies offer their heart from the left side, but men go through the front, there are not so hard people. Uh, of course, I'm not saying you're implying that. <laughs> but, but, I mean, if you take that in a proper light, it's nice. You can offer, if you like to offer Dandava Pranam from left side and, and think about the heart and offering yourself, that may be favorable, no problem. As much as one is not thinking the ones who are offering without the left side are not giving their heart so much and so on. So again, it's a detail. No, I, I personally do not get to ten, get too much entangled in this way, this other way. But the point is the heart here, as you mentioned. Whether left, right, the heart is the important thing. And if the heart is in the proper place, we will be willing to follow, accept certain advice that are tasteful for Krishna, if you will. But the most important thing, yeah, is the presence of the heart. Someone wanted to make some question, I think, and, and, and unmuted themselves. Or not? 
I heard someone before I read this question, someone was unmuting. May I have a question? Who is speaking? Oh, it's Marush. Yes, can you speak a little bit louder? I cannot hear you that much. Uh, yes, you can hear me now. Yes, yes. Uh, Dandavas. Dandavas, yeah. I want to uh, ask about these project projections of our qualities to others. Mm. That how it works, like, maybe. Because I hear, hear it often in the other circles. Well, of course, uh, how it works. Again, this shouldn't be a neurosis, hmm? because that can also be. You can go to the extreme of feeling... Whatever I'm seeing in anyone, for sure, I must have it. That's not necessarily the case. Uh, I once hear some devotees speaking sometimes about like giving the example of a mirror, like saying whatever you are seeing in others, it's a mirror of what's in your heart. I mean, there's a place for that idea in one level, but that's not necessarily the case always. If someone may be envious, it's not that if I perceive that envy, I must be envious for sure, and he is not envious, and I'm just projecting my own envy. Not necessarily. I mean, it can happen, it cannot. Or, or, or maybe the person has envy, and I may have envy on other, another type of envy. <laughs> so while trying to help that person to overcome his or her envy, at, at simultaneously I, may, I must be, I should be, uh, how to say, very much aware I'm working on my own envy. So that one thing should be evasive in connection to the other. So how to know where is an projection of mine or not? Well, there's not some magical button that you will press and you will know this is yours, this is his or hers. But that will take you to introspection, to contemplation, to sincerity, to prayer, to look to yourself, to take the time for that. Now, if we see, see something in someone, we shouldn't rush quickly into conclude about the person, into emit some judgment, but to put pause, stop, and to go to ourselves and to to explore our inner landscape. And that that's difficult, for sure. That's e It's much easier, quote-unquote easier, it's much more complicated eventually, but it's easier to superficially project everything to the outside. But it's difficult to take the time to look inside yourself and really detect, is this something that is coming in me? Is this something that is coming in the other person? I mean, if you really are honest and sincere, have introspection and pray to Bhagavan, please enlighten me mean that in this regard, you will receive some clarity in that connection. Now, it's something that actually I'm projecting on the other person or not. In this case, it's really something that's going out outside of myself. But even if that's the case, again, so many other stages, as I mentioned, are there you know, that we need to go through. Okay, he may have that, she may have that. How do I approach that? I am being compassionate, I'm being well-wishing how much I'm willing to commit myself to accompany the other person. We may be realizing, oh, I don't want to do that. So in that sense, I don't have a right to, to see anything in anyone yet, basically, because I, I don't want to contribute, if you will, <laughs> to the whole thing. But again, the, the reply will be contemplation, introspection, and that will get refined in time as we, as we engage in that exercise, because we should remain in that like contemplative mood, because that's going on at any moment. At every moment we are relating with people, we are seeing things, and, and it's very difficult to witness a situation. I remember once I was studying one book called Nonviolent Communication. It's a whole system. It's interesting points making. 
And one of the main points they were making in order not to be violent in your communication is whenever you are addressing a particular person or situation, just be a witness of that and do not judge. No, do not project a particular, this is wrong, this is bad, this, and, and, and you will realize as much as you try to do it, how difficult that is. Srila Siyamaras will say that, because our minds in the conditioned state are trained to be projecting prejudices all over the environment at any single moment. I like and don't like, and, don't, and this is good, and this is bad, and this is... And just to be a witness and to observe something as objectively as possible, oh, that's not so easy, but you, we should train our mind in order to remain equipoised, samadarshanam as Gita said a real pandit is someone who has equal vision towards everything and everyone on that foundation he will act accordingly so again this is a whole training, a whole practice, a whole process that should accompany our chanting that should accompany our sadhusang should accompany whatever we are doing how we deal which integrity are we putting in our lives? So, something about that, hopefully, that helps. Thank you very much. Okay. Any other question? Can I try again? Maras, can Ar- you hear me? Yes, Archon City, how are you? Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm doing all right. Sriman Prabhu ki Jai. Jai. My question is about um, when you're chanting Japa in the morning before the deities, and I try to do like a monavrat during my Japa period, so kind of try to keep my energy inside and not go outside. So I, if somebody comes in, I don't pay obeisances, or I don't talk. And is that like offensive to, to be doing that, or what are your thoughts? Okay. <laughs> Well, in your particular case, because you are speaking about your particular case, because you say when I chant Japa in the morning before the deity, for sure. I mean, hopefully everyone is doing that, but not necessarily. Uh, so my point is, in your particular case, and I know your dynamics, I've been there many times, and now that you tell it, excuse me, if some of those mornings I spoke to you and I broke your bow. But the point is that you say, okay, I'm chanting in front of the deity, so I'm not offering obeisances if anyone comes. So in that sense, one may say you are protected in the sense that it is say that if you are in front of the deity, you should not offer obeisances to anyone because you are in front of Bhagavan. I mean, again, we should under, we will speak about more in, in the class about Archana. But if you are in front of the deity, means if you, you are in front of Bhagavan, strictly speaking, not the deity. Of course, we say the deity, I understand the point, but we should gradually understand this is Krishna himself, Sri Sri Radha Gopinath, in this case. So I offer all my attention and all my all converges into that direction. And hopefully whoever appears on a scene will go in that same direction and flow also. So if I'm chanting Harinamu, which also is not different from them, all the flow is, goes there. So there is no fault if some Vaishnav is coming and you are not offering obeisances to that person. Of course, that shouldn't be an excuse to not do so after that, if you will. Or if you are chanting and you realize the person came, at least internally some inner regard will be there, and eventually when you finish your chanting, your brat, and you are outside of the temple, if you will, of the altar area, one offers pranam to, to the Vaishnava. So, again, it has to do with mostly with this 
with the attitude. No, it's not like an excuse to not do that. We were speaking about that when we were spoken about when we described this Brita Sura Lila these days, and, and the whole thing has to do with Indra at one point being in, in Swarga and being worshipped by everyone in Swarga, and he was the center of the party, if you will. He was on the top of the wave. <laughs> it was his moment, Tarangarangini. And suddenly Brihaspati comes, who is Indra's guru, someone higher than him. But Indra realized that, but he continued just like, like if he didn't see Brihaspati, but he realized, he saw him. And Brihaspati realized that, and he disappeared from this scene. And Indra lost Guru Kripa at that moment. So again, that's a particular situation. I'm not saying this is the same situation you are mentioning. So yeah, there, there is place for for these types of brata if you are chanting, especially if you are chanting in front of the deity and, and, and so on. If not, if you are just in your room chanting and, and the Vaishnava comes, I mean, you can offer for a minute pranam to the Vaishnava. It doesn't mean that you have to start a whole conversation with the person. And again, there are cases if you are in your room chanting Japan, suddenly your guru comes unexpectedly to visit you, for sure I imagine one will interrupt <laughs> one's chanting and one will feel, oh, this is the fruit of my chanting. Srila Gurudev came and you will give some special attention. So again, there's no like fixed black and white rule, but it has to do with having the proper like intuitive feeling according to this Vaishnava common sense. So... I hope that helps. You can continue chanting there in front of Radha Gopinath. We won't interrupt you. You can get absorbed in that, no problem. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, no, thank you. There's one question here from Greg. He says, can you, can you please explain the difference between Dandavats and Pranam? I missed the first 25 minutes today, so I apologize if you already covered this today. Well... I covered that on one level. We could say that pranam is is it in a, it's a generic term that can apply to dandavats. Generally, we say dandavat pranam. So it's a form of pranam, dandavat pranam, or sastanga pranam, or panchanga pranam. I don't know if that was in the very first 25 minutes. but So pranam is a generic term. So maybe you, you understood pranam like doing only the mudra, but there are, again, degrees of that. You fall to the ground like a rod, dandavat pranam. You offer obeisance with five limbs of your body, panchanga pranam, like the normal, if you will, common obeisance, which is not falling to like a rod. And then you have like the namaskar mudra. Again, it will also sometimes depend on the circumstance. Maybe you cannot just fall like a rod in the airport if your guru counts, as we mentioned. <laughs> but you can offer these. So, or depending the, the situation or the or, or the degree of your inspiration, you are not forced to fall like a rod to everyone or whatever, or become because of health problem, you may not be able to fall like a rod, even though it's nice to to see the, the, the sacrifice to do so. A nice example that I always quote is Sila Bhakti Pramod Puri Maharaj, who was who was like almost one hundred years, and no matter how old he was, every time he was in front of the deities. He did his dandavat pranam, falling like a rod, and that took minutes to him to go down to the floor and get down and extend himself. And he remained praying there like for minutes, and then he came back and got back. It was a whole event that may last maybe for 15 minutes, and he was offering pranam. But the ones who witnessed that were totally moved. I mean, that's dandavat pranam. <laughs> and I remember once he was chanting his diksha mantras. And he lasted for like 45 minutes. So someone asked him after that, I mean, 
what happened. No, I mean, you are old. Maybe it takes some time for you to recite. Maybe you forgot some, whatever. And he said, no, but because before before starting my recita recitation of Gayatri Diksha Mantra, I was offering pranam to each one of the members of the Guru Parampara. So that takes some time. Again, it's not that you have to do the same thing, but if you are doing that in a natural way, that's totally inspiring. I mean, we should try to enter into that mode. So, again, there's in one sense no difference between Dandavada and Pranam, because Dandavada is a form of Pranam. But if you want to take Pranam and just Pranam Mudra or Anjali Mudra, well, Dandavada will refer in that case to a very special form of giving yourself fully, if you will. But again, it's a special point in all these pranamis, the inner state of mind. It's not only a physical aerobic exercise, down, up, down, up. It can become a mechanical thing. It should not. So that the more important thing is your heart is being invested there. Okay. So thank you very much. Yes. Oh, Brigo, you, you, yeah, you are question. there. You are there, and you had a question about pranam from the other day. I, I didn't know you were there. Please. Dandavat, Dandavat Maharaj. Yeah. Uh, my question really is about uh, because when we are meeting each other like this on 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 Zoom or in other ways, we can't really do proper uh, Dandavat or any other kind of pranam. And I'm wondering about the etiquette of speaking about these things. Do you have any thoughts about that? Because for me, when people are saying pranam, mm -hmm. uh, and this may be just my personal idiosyncrasy, but for me it sounds like they are basically uh, by saying, doing like this, like you would do to a friend. Uh, let, let me see your, your video. I, I cannot see you. One minute. We, we need to... Aha, uh aha, -huh, uh -huh, yeah. yeah. Like pronoun, pronoun. Uh -huh. More or less like... Hey. <laughs> so, so uh, is, uh, is mm. this just my kind of... of idiosyncratic uh, idea or or do you think there is something in this because i think like you as a as a sannyasi that would be your way of greeting a householder for example but a householder should pay pay dandavat or or at least obeisances to you mm -hmm. do you think that there's a difference about uh, between these different uh, can, uh, my question really is can we can we indicate the kind of of obeisance we are paying by our words in these two days. Mm. Well, I, I think you brought a very relevant point that we spoke the other day, something, that connection that I, I mentioned, uh, that we, that with, in, in, our, in, in this new age of social media, which implies total new social dynamics, and, and on top of that, the COVID phenomenon, which implies even more particular social dynamics, <laughs> No, in relation to social media, we should have a new updated version of Vaishnava etiquette and a new upgraded version, commentary to Hari Bhakti Vilas according to our present times. Hopefully, Brigupad may feel inspired to, to, to contribute to the community in that sense. You are working on that. Because again, part, a great part of the elements of Vaishnava etiquette had to do with certain social dynamics of the time and so on. So naturally how that plays itself out in a very particular, unique time like we are living now, uh, it's important to, to wonder about. And, and I, I agree with your point that sometimes one may abuse, if you will, these types of ideas and one may just quick run to the quickest and most comfortable way of 
doing that on some level at least, no? Jai Pranam, Jai... Or sometimes they say, or Dandavats, I mean, I, I'm sometimes, sometimes I joke, uh, we are speaking here, but sometimes somebody would say Dandavats, and you say, well, if you, you don't say Dandavat, you pay Dandavat. No? Because Dandavat means I fall to the ground like a rod. So you don't say Dandavat, you just offer them and pronounce the respective mantra. But again, I understand, you are, we are speaking here, it's, it's a little bit different dynamics I mean it's not you are not forbidden anyone is not forbidden to fall for, to the ground but I understand the practicality of it so I, I think that and yes one can be easily take the things cheaply and just express some words and uh, okay the Brigupa offered down the <laughs> uh, and that's the point what you mentioned Agrihata should offer Dandavat or pranam to sannyasi. Sannyasi in the scripture say he's not uh, expected to offer them back to everyone. I think that the sensitivity behind that is that everyone is offering daily so many obeisances to a sannyasi that he may remain the whole day long on the, on the floor if he's to go to the floor every time everyone is doing something. Uh, of course, it's not that I'm forbidden to do so because this is subtle things that we may feel. Oh, I'm a sannyasi. You are to offer obeisances to me. I won't offer obeisances to anyone, and that's not that should be the fact. And in one sense, we should go even beyond the the, the social uh, um, limiting adjunct of Varun Ashram, if we will, when we speak about Vaishnav. But what I was saying before is that yes, one can easily abuse this and say and use just yad pranam and, and that that's covering all the bases, if you will. If you have the proper adhikar and the proper insight, you may be able to just do like this and really be falling to the ground in in, in your inner self. But my point is, I will say that for most of us, the very act of moving our body and taking the difficult, if you will, of all that. It's helping us to reach that state of consciousness. And even if you reach that state of consciousness, you may continue doing that as, as an example to others. And as a natural way that you... Like the example I gave of Bhakti Pramod Puri Maharaj. I mean, he was not in need to do that. I mean, he was totally perfect. Like Sanatana Goswami wanted to circumambulate Govardhan. He was so old. And Krishna said, You're, you don't need that any longer. Stop that. Or when Haridastaku was not able to finish the three lakhs and Mahaprabhu said, you are already Namacharya, no need to chant so many rounds. And all of them say, please Lord, do not cheat me. I'm so fallen. First of all, they will have this humility. I need to do this. <clears throat> I need to purify myself. I, and I want to do this. I, I, the point is that we find a taste in that. That's the point. We, we, it becomes really, we have some ruchi for putting our head to the ground. <laughs> That so, <clears throat> I will say again, this is not the fourth thing. Sometimes, for some devotees, in, they may have some uh, idiosyncrasy, as you have yours, some other may have some other DNA, if you will. That for them, it may be shocking to go to the floor, or they may have some traumatic experience with an abusive sannyasi, and, and, and they have difficulty to, to bow their heads to any suffering clad person. So, there are so many complex landscapes there that need to be properly addressed but at the end of the day the conclusion is uh, it's a healthy expression of our hearts it's a healthy exercise so i i personally will say yes do, do not very do not take this very cheaply and just no i do like this and say pranam and i've covered all my bases or, not, or i say bunch of kalpaturubhya say in the morning so i don't need to say that to anyone else along the day not necessarily so one has to be very attentive what's 
what what's that creating in our own inner world in our own devotional attitude so so it's not an excuse but it's something that is really justifiable so i hope that helps some ideas and the rest will be waiting for your tika on hari bhakti vilas in more contemporary terms please <laughs> Thank you. Yes, that that that's very helpful. And I can also say that I also saw Shla Bhakti Pramod Puri Maharaj pay his his dandavats, and it was so inspiring. I I'm going to carry that in my heart for the rest of my life. I'm yeah, sure. you you yourself say that. No, it creates very deep bhakti samskars. It may be some few minutes, but may change the course, the life course of one forever. So that's an, an example of how something apparently so simple has, if properly done has the potential of, I mean, if that was affecting you and so many others for sure in such a deep way, you can imagine how much he himself was, deep, deep, this was deeply affected by that simple but substantial act. So we should not lose sight of the depth in, in the simplicity of something like offering obeisances on a daily basis as part of our daily sadhana, something that will nourish our bhajan. So thank you very much for, for sharing your ter- testimony. So thank you very much to all of you for being present there. And uh, let's finish here. But beca- before finishing, one minute that I would like to tell you that since I'm now in Madhavan, Costa Rica, but I will be traveling to the U.S. in some days. So on Monday, which is generally the next of our next uh, lecture, I will be traveling from Madhavan to San Jose. So I won't be able to be here with you next Monday. And on, t- on Tuesday, I will be traveling to the U.S., so what I'm thinking is, and the next lecture will be on Thursday, the other lecture. But next Thursday is at Beta Saptami. And we will have some lecture from my Guru Maharaj. So in this case, I think uh, what we can do is next lecture will be on Friday 19. We can move one day, because if not, we will have like two weeks without lecture. <laughs> so we can next do next, next week. The only lecture we can do it, if hopefully you can, on Friday. Friday 19, one day after Advaita Saptami. And the other week, well, I will remind you on, on, on next Friday. But next next week, we can meet the other Friday, which is, I don't know, 20-something, 20 22. And the other Thursday will be Nityananda Toyodasi, so we won't have in class lecture that day as well. So we may be moving also to the next day, Friday 26. Just for you to know if you want to, if you can organize the next two Thursdays, we won't have lecture, we move it to the next Friday and next Monday there's no lecture because I will be traveling. So that's it. See you next, uh, not tomorrow, but Wednesday, uh, Friday 19, basically. Srila Gurudev ki jai, Sriman Mahaprabhu ki jai, Sri Harinam Sankirtan ki jai, Gaur Bhakta Vrinda ki jai, Gaur Primananda Haribo.